Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Arunachalaramanaya uh, Namaskaram. Today, um, the first question I would I, I want to address is um, is self investigation a mental activity? This this question is a summary of a a comment that someone wrote on my uh, on one of the videos on my YouTube channel um, a few weeks or months ago. <clears throat> what that person wrote was, Hi Michael, to my understanding from Bhagavan's fundamental teaching regarding the self-investigation. One, we are using the mind continuously in a very sharp manner, Kundamati. Two, like a pearl diver, we need to be very intense to get the Atmamutu. Atmamutu means pearl of self. Uh, three, uh, using the mind as a stick to burn the corpse. All these indicate turning within is not cessation of activity for the present stage of ego. Actually, it is an intense process of the ego until it gets until it gets destroyed. Once it is annihilated, then there will be no activity, as you say, as you said. Can you comment on my understanding? Um, that is firstly the three passages he refers to here. The first one in which he uses the word kundamati, that is referring to verse 28 of Uludunapadu, in which Bhagavan used the term kundamati. The second one is referring particularly to the 11th paragraph of Nana, where Bhagavan gave the analogy of a pearl diver sinking within to get the pearl of self. And the third one is referring to the sixth paragraph of Nana, where Bhagavan uses the analogy of using a stick to burn the corpse. So I will first go through each of these to, so we can understand exactly what Bhagavan is saying. That is what Bhagavan says in verse 28 of Uludunapadu is, Erumbum ahande erumidate. That means the place uh, uh, from which the rising ego rises, or the rising place of the rising ego, that in the sense of the rising place in the center, place from which it rises, and it, what is it that rises? It is ego. So uh, the place from which the rising ego rises, um, then he gives an analogy. Niril virinda poral kana bendi muruhudal pol. That is like um, that means uh, like sinking, wanting to see something that has fallen in water, um, and then the, the, the rest of the verses kondu matial pechu mucho adiki kondu ule andu aria vendum ari. What that um, what that means is like sinking, wanting to see something that has fallen in water, sinking within, restraining speech and breath by a sharpened mind, it is necessary to know the place where the rising ego rises. No. Um, the term that I've translated sharpened mind is um, kundamati. Kunda means pointy, well, uh, it, the, uh, as a as a noun or adjective, kur means sharp. As a verb, it means to to penetrate, to be uh, to be very 
pointed, sharp. So Kundamati is a very pointed, a very sharp, a very it implies a very focused mind. But on what should the mind be focused? Since our aim is to know the rising place of the rising ego, that is the place from which the rising ego rises, what is the place from which ego rises? Ego must rise from that which exists prior to its rising. What exists in the absence of ego is only our own being. That is, what exists and shines in sleep, for example, is only our own being, I am. So, I am is the source from which we rise as ego. Ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I, I am this body, whereas, ego, whereas um, our real nature is the pure awareness, I am. So, our, our real nature, the, the, that fundamental awareness I am, which is our own existence, that is the source from which we rise as ego. So when Bhagavan says we must investigate the place from which the rising ego rises, that place, of course, he's using the word place metaphorically in the sense of source, that source is ourself as we actually are. In other words, ourself as that as the pure awareness I am, the pure I am is the source. So that is what we need to investigate. Um, uh, and he, how we should investigate it is kundamatiya, by, by or with a, a sharp mind. So, but what should the mind be focused on? It should be focused only on ourself, on I am. That is a way to know I am. So by that focused mind, we need to uh, we we need to um, know what we actually are. We need to know the source from which we've risen. When we focus our attention on ourselves, that will automatically bring about the, um, the 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 subsidence of speech and breath. So restraining speech and breath. When, though Bhagavan mentions re restraining speech and breath, he uh, he doesn't mean that we should first try and restrain our speech and breath and then try to know ourselves. No. By the same focused mind, by the same mind that is focused on ourselves, on the source from which we've risen as ego, by focusing the mind thus, we automatically restrain the speech and breath. And uh, why? How is the, how are the speech and breath restrained by our focusing our attention on ourselves? Because to the extent to which our attention is focused on ourselves, the rising ego will subside. Uh, so the, uh, that is what he means by when he talks about sinking. He says it's um, sinking within, restraining speech and breath by a sharpened mind. So we the. We know ourselves by we we know the source from which we've risen with a sharper mind. We sink within with a sharper mind, and we restrain the speech and breath with a sharpened mind. So, what Bhagavan is talking about here is one thing: right? attention focused keenly on ourselves. So, um, this is contrary to what this person who asked the question. This does not imply that it is an activity, because to the extent to which we focus our attention on the source from which we've risen, namely our own being, we thereby subside. So 
turning our attention within and keenly focusing it on ourselves is not an activity, it is a cessation of activity. It is not just a cessation of activity, it is the cessation of the doer of all activity, namely ego. So to the extent to which we turn our attention within, ego thereby subsides or sinks deep within. And, um, and uh, yeah, by sinking within, all its I mean, to the extent that ego subsides, all, it act all its activities subside along with it. So um, what Bhagavan says in this verse does not imply that it is, a, um, it is an activity. When he says Kondamati uh, with a sharpened mind, he that sharpened mind is a, a mind keenly focused on our own being, which is the source from which we have risen. So attending to our being is not a doing, it is a cessation of doing. Attending to anything other than ourselves is a doing because it entails a movement of our mind or attention away from ourselves towards some other thing. Whereas turning our attention back within and focusing it on our source doesn't entail any outward going movement, it entails only sinking within. Bhagavan uses two words here that mean sinking. In the analogy, when he's talking about uh, uh, like sinking, um, wanting to see something that has fallen in water, there the verb he uses is muruhu, muruhu. And when he talks about uh, sinking within ourselves, uh, he uses the verb arndu. Both these verbs mean more or less the same. They both mean sinking. Generally, people translate these as diving. But diving, I prefer to translate it as sinking because I think that gives a better idea of what Bhagavan means. That is the main dictionary meaning given for the, both these verbs is sinking. Diving is only a secondary meaning. When we, if we use the word diving in English, it implies an active. We're doing something actively. Whereas when you're sinking, it is it is a more passive thing. So by focusing our attention on ourselves, we sink within, we subside within. So that is what Bhagavan means here by sinking. Um, the, the same two verbs Bhagavan uses in that paragraph in Nana, in which, well, in the sentence in Nana, where he refers, where he uses the analogy of a pearl diver. What he says in, um, in, in, um, in that, uh, passage is um, um, uh, uh, in, uh, I'll just put the sentence in context because um, he use, he talks about the pearl divers tying stones to their waist. The stone that he is referring to there, that stone is a a, a metaphor for uh, veragium. He, he defined Vairagya earlier, a couple of sentences earlier. What he says is, his definition of Vairagyam or Nirasan, Vairagyam and Nirasa both mean more or less the same. Freedom from desire, not having desire for anything other than ourselves. So he defines them as Anyate Nada Dirital 
veragium aludu nirasa nirase. That is uh, not attending or being without attending or being not attending to anything other. Other means anything other than ourself. That is veragia or uh, nirasa. Nirasa means asa means desire. Nirase means freedom from desire. Um, so that's what he says in one sentence. So um, not attending to anything other than ourself is veragium. And then in the next sentence, he says, Tane vidā diratal jñānam. Being without leaving oneself is jñāna. So on the one hand, not attending to anything other than ourself is vairāgya. And uh, not leaving ourself, being without leaving ourself is jñāna. And then he says, unmail irendum andre. In truth, the two are one. That is not attending to anything else and uh, uh, and holding on to ourselves, not leaving ourselves, are one and the same thing. This is the context in which he gives this analogy. So when he talks about the pearl divers tying stones to their waist, the stone is an analogy, is, sorry, is a metaphor for, uh, or is analogous to, um, the stone, but a, uh, sorry, the stone is analogous to veragium. So in order to sink deep within ourselves, we need to have veragia. So long as we have great desire to go outwards, we won't be able to sink very deep within. So we need to be free of desire to go outwards. And being free of desire means not attending to anything other than ourselves. So what he says in this sentence is, mutu kolipo tam ideil kalle kati kondu murhi Kadal adil kidekum mutte epidi edu epidi edu kira galo. That what that means is um, uh, just as pearl divers tying stones to their waists and sinking pick up pearls that are found at the bottom of the ocean. I'll just say one thing here. The fact that Bhagavan mentions the fact that the pearl divers tie, die, tie stones to their waist, it self-implies that what he means is not diving but sinking. In order to sink within, they tie stones to their waist. So if you have sufficient varagya and hold on to yourself firmly enough, you automatically sink into yourself is the implication. So, just as pearl divers tying stones to their waist and sinking pick up pearls that are found at the bottom of the ocean, apadiye, um, in the same, in exactly the same way, obvorubhanam, uh, each one of us, each and every one, veragya tudan tanul andu murhi atma mutte adeyalam. So each each one that means each and every one of us is the implication. Um, uh, with veragia can uh, sink deep uh, within one's, oneself and thereby attain the the atma mutu, the, the self pearl, the pearl that is oneself. So the pearl here is an is a, a, an analogy for um, our know, knowing our own real nature. So he says, 
he says with veragya, that means without that means we shouldn't be in order to sink deep within, we need to give up all desire to attend to anything other than ourselves. So long as we have desire to attend to other things, when we try to turn within, our mind will keep on jumping outwards. That is why Vairagya he's emphasizing the need for Vairagya here. And Vairagya means not attending to anything other than ourselves. So long as we have desire to experience anything other than ourselves, we have a strong inclination to attend to other things. Those strong inclinations are what he refers to as Vishaya Vasanas in this paragraph and in the previous paragraph. Vishaya means anything other than ourselves, any object or phenomenon. Vasana means... Um, uh, but vasana means inclination. So the inclination or liking or desire to attend, to experience anything other than ourself is a vishaya vasana. So vairagya is being free of those vishaya vasanas, being free of the inclination to, to attend to other things. So, of course, we all still have strong inclination. That's why patient and persistent practice is necessary. But the more we practice turning within, and trying to sink deep within, that is, we don't have to do anything to sink deep within. Merely by turning our attention within and holding firmly to ourself, as he, as he describes it in, in the earlier sentence, being without leaving oneself. So holding firmly to ourself, we thereby will automatically, if we don't allow ourselves to be swayed by the Vishaya Vasanas, we will thereby automatically sink within. Here, in, in the, when giving the analogy of the pearl diver sinking, he uses the verb uh, murhi, that is sinking um, within. Here he uses both the verbs I mentioned. He says, andu murhi. So andu in this sense, in this context, means deep. So sinking deep within, we have to sink very deep within ourselves in order to know ourselves as we actually are. And in order to sink deep within ourselves, we need to hold on to ourselves so firmly, but we thereby uh, avoid attending to anything other than ourselves. So this is what he means here. Attending to anything other than ourself is an action. It's a movement of our mind away from ourselves towards something else. But holding on to ourself is not an action. It is a state of just being. And because we refrain from being, we thereby automatically subside and sink back into our source. So this pearl diver analogy does not imply that it is an activity. It implies that we should hold on to ourselves and thereby sink deep within ourselves. Um, and then the third uh, point he says about the person who asked the question, he says, using the mind within brackets ego as a stick to burn the corpse. This analogy of a stick to burn the corpse is an analogy that Bhagavan uses in the sixth paragraph of Nana. What he says in the first two sentences of this paragraph are, um, in the first sentence, he says, Nana innam vicharane inalaye manam adangam. That means the mind will subside or uh, cease or disappear forever only by the investigation, who am I? And to make that, to strongly emphasize only by the investigation, he, in Tamil, the, 
when uh, the long letter E, that is, uh, is added to the end of any word, that is an intensifying suffix. Um, so when when that is ad added twice, it is a very strong intensifier. So he said vicharane inal. That vicharane inal means by vichara, but he doesn't just say vicharane inal. He says vicharane inal aye. That that aye is a very strong intensifier. So that means that implies only by this investigation will the mind cease. And then in the next sentence he says. Nana enum ninebu, matu ninebu galei, elam aritu, pinnum chudu tadipol, mudivil tanum arium. What that means is, um, uh, the thought who am I, destroying all other thoughts, will in the end itself be destroyed like a corpse burning stick. The, a corpse burning stick means when um, in India, uh, corpses are generally cremated on an open pyre. That is a, a wooden cow dung is, is, is built up into a, like a, like a, a bed-like structure. The corpse is laid on top of it. More cow dung is, is placed on top of the corpse. And then the whole thing is lit. The cow dung is there. That means dry cow dung. It's very combustible, and that uh, makes uh, 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 keeps the fire burning steadily. But in order to ensure that the corpse is is thoroughly um, consumed by the fire, it is necessary for someone to attend to the fire. And when sticks or other bits fall out of the fire, they have to be pushed back in. So someone who's attending to a funeral pyre will have a stick. And using that stick, they will push back any, um, any pieces of uh, burning wood or other burning material that falls out of the fire. They'll push it back into the fire and keep on putting it over the corpse so the corpse is thoroughly burnt. Um, so that is what Bhagavan, that's the, what Bhagavan uses as an analogy here. If you're using a stick in this way to keep a fire burning um, fiercely, the stick will catch fire and eventually the stick will be burned. So just like that stick that is used to, uh, to keep the funeral pyre burning, constantly pushing the fire back to the center, um, just like that stick will... Uh, destroy all other all the other pieces of wood in the funeral pyre, and eventually it will be destroyed itself. Like that, the thought who am I will destroy all other thoughts, and in the end be destroyed. What does he mean by the thought who am I? Here he's using the term thought. He he doesn't mean some people misunderstand it to mean that we have to think who am I? We have to think the words who am I. That is not what he means. Here he's using the word thought in a metaphorical sense. What he referred to in the previous sentence as the investigation who am I, is what he refers to in this sentence as the thought who am I. So what the investigation who am I means attention to ourself. By attending to ourself, that's what he means by the, the thought who am I, that, that attention to ourself, the attentiveness with which we attend to or investigate ourselves. That is the uh, stick that is used. Again, that, that thought who am I is not an activity. 
all other thoughts are activities because all other thoughts are our attention going outwards towards other things. Whereas attending to ourself is not a thought. Um, Bhagavan often refers to this practice metaphorically as a thought because since attention to anything other than ourself is a thought, attention to ourself is metaphorically a thought, it's not literally a thought. Um, other places, other terms he uses in the same text, nana, is he uses the term apmachintana. Apmachintana literally means thought of oneself, um, but it implies self-attentiveness or self-investigation. He also uses the term swarupa dhyana, meditation on our real nature. Meditation means thinking, literally, but it doesn't mean literally thinking. It means meditating on our real nature means just attending to ourselves. Um, he uses other terms. He uses the term swarupa smarane, self-remembrance. But again, that just means attending to ourselves. Um, so what actually is self-investigation? In the 16th paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan gives a very clear and unambiguous uh, definition of what he means by the term Atmavichara. What he says there is, Sadakalamu Atmavil Manate Vaitiripatikutan Atmavichara Mendrupaya. That is, the name Atmavichara refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. What does it mean to keep the mind on oneself? If we keep our mind on something, that means we attend to it. Put your mind to the task on hand means attend to it, be attentive. So keeping the mind on something means being attentive. Attending to, so when we keep our mind on something, we are attending to it. So what Bhagavan means by always keeping our mind on ourselves means always attending to ourselves. And what does he mean by ourselves? By ourselves, he means just our own being, not anything that we now take ourselves to be. Now, <clears throat> why is why are we why is it first taught that we are not this body, we are not this mind, we are not any of the five sheaths? We are taught that because in order to investigate ourselves, we first need to understand what we are not. We are not what we now seem to be. What we actually are is just the fundamental awareness I. The eye that is now mistaking itself to be, um, um, well, it, the, the pure eye obviously never mistakes itself to be uh, the body, but as ego, we mistake ourselves to be the body. So that eye that is now aware of itself as I am this body, that eye needs to turn its attention back on itself to see what it actually is. That is self-investigation. That is not an activity. Um, to explain this in more detail, I'll just refer to one passage in um, in Maharshi's Gospel. Uh, um, this is in the chapter on um, on uh, called self inquiry, and um, it's I think in well in the edition I've got here it's on page fifty of that uh, of that edition. So what the question Bhagavan asked is asked there by a devotee is, but is it not funny that the eye should be searching for the eye? Does not the inquiry who am I turn out in the end an empty formula? Or am I to put the question to myself endlessly, repeating it like some mantra? And Bhagavan replies, 
Self-inquiry is certainly not an empty formula. It is more than the repetition of any mantra. If, in, if the inquiry, who am I, were a mere mental questioning, it would not be of much value. The very purpose of self-inquiry is to focus the entire mind at its source. It is not, therefore, a case of one eye searching for another eye. Much less is self-inquiry an empty formula, for it involves an intense activity of the entire mind to keep it steadily poised in pure self-awareness. Here the word activity is used, but I, I believe this word activity is a mistranslation. I believe the word Bhagavan would have used in this context is muichi. Muichi means effort. Most efforts we make, ex, ex, efforts, external efforts we make are activities, but the effort we make to attend to ourselves is not an activity. Because as Bhagavan says, that the effort that is required, an effort of the entire mind to keep it steadily poised in self-awareness, in pure self-awareness. To be steadily poised in something is to be is not to be doing something, but to be fixed in something. So it is not, though the word activity here is used here, obviously Bhagavan wasn't speaking in English, he was speaking in Tamil. And in some contexts, muichi can mean activity, but that is not what he means here. He, what he means here is uh, effort. This is made clear in uh, another passage, that is in, um, in uh, Upadesha Manjari, uh, uh, Swami Natanananda, one the Fourth question, uh, question four in the second chapter of Upadesha Manjari, um, uh, uh, what Swaminathananda asked Bhagavan was, Summa irake embadu muichi ulla nilaya muichi atra nilaya. That means, is what is called summa irake, just being. A state in which there is effort, or a state in which there is no, in which effort has ceased. In other words, is, is it a, is it a state of effort, or is this an effortless state? Um, and what Bhagavan replied is, "Adu muichi atrador sombal nile andru." It is that is not a state of sombal. Sombol means uh, idleness, lethargy, drowsiness, or dullness. Uh, one in which effort has ceased. So it is not an effort. To, uh, it is not uh, devoid of effort. Uh, Bhagavan says, and then he goes on to say, um, well, "I'll just read the English translation: the entire extent of worldly activities, which are described as efforts in facing outwards." are done intermittently by parichinna manam. Parichinna manam means a divided mind or a limited part of a mind. In contrast, the Atma Vivahara, the spiritual practice called Ahamukatil Summa Irake. That means just being in Ahamukam means um means facing inwards or facing southwards. Ahamukatil uh, means in facing southwards. Summa irake means just being. 
So Bhagavan's describing the practice of self-investigation as just being in facing inwards. In other words, by turning our attention inwards, we just remain as we actually are. And he says that is a, a full effort, a murumurchi, he describes it. A, no, sorry, he said purnamurchi. It's a, it's a complete total effort with the entire mind uh, and without interruption. That is how he says it in Tamil is, um with the entire mind idaindrium uh, without um without uh without interruption in other words constant steady um sayapadam uh, it is a it is a purna effort it's a complete effort uh, with the entire mind so here, the, ter the term he's using is muichi, which means effort. But in some English translations of this, it has been translated as, um, the muichi has been translated as activity. But that's missing the point because summa irake means just being. Just being cannot be an activity. What, what Natananda was asking is about effort. Is effort required? Generally, we associate effort with activity, but to illustrate how we can make effort to avoid activity, I can give a simple analogy. Supposing there's a, a, a river, a, big, a, a, a great river like the Ganga is in flood. Supposing a huge flood, some glaciers are melting high up in the Himalayas, and so the Ganga goes into flood, so there's a huge flood carrying it, whatever is, it gets caught in that flood is carried away. So suppose we're caught away, we're caught in that flood, we'd be um, swept away down the river. But if we're able to hold on to something firm, something unmoving, supposing we, we find a rock we can hold on to or a tree, something that is very firm and steady, in order to hold on to that tree, we, we need great effort because the current is very, very strong. So we're holding on to that tree with great effort, but we are not doing anything. That, that is, if we let go of the tree, then we, we get swept away by the movement of the river. So the, the natural movement of the mind is to flow outwards. That is activity. That is like the, 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 the Ganga in flood. It, the mind is always rushing outwards with so much activity. By holding firmly to our own being, that's like holding on to the rock in the middle of the flood. So long as we hold firmly to the rock, we don't move at all. We stay in the same place. If we let go of the rock, then we begin moving. Likewise, holding on to our own being is not an activity. It is a cessation of activity. There's no movement involved in attending to ourself. If we let go of ourself, then we get carried away by the natural outward going movement of the mind. So what? we shouldn't equate effort with activity. Effort is absolutely essential in this path, as Bhagavan makes clear. But that effort is not an activity. It is an effort to summa irake. Summa irake means just being. Being just the summa, 
summa means just in the sense of not doing anything. That is, summa, summa irapudu or summa irake means being without doing anything. How to be without doing anything? As Bhagavan clarified, the state of summa irake or summa irapudu is the state in which we do not rise as ego. So not rising as ego is summa irake. So in order to remain without rising as ego, we need to be in the state of ahamukam, facing inwards. We need to be, but our entire attention needs to be facing inward, facing towards ourself alone. By turning our attention within, we thereby refrain from all activity and remain as pure being, as we actually are. That is what Bhagavan means by summa irapadu. So summa irapadu is the non-rising of ego. The non-rising of ego is not an activity. The rising of ego is an activity and the root of all other activities. That is, all other activities uh, arise from our rising as ego. Only when we rise as ego do we get caught up in all other activities. But if we hold on to our own being, ego uh, that is, we as ego, there, to the extent to which we hold firmly to our being, to that extent do we sink... With, within subside within and thereby cease doing cease from act, refrain from activity this we can also understand from um from what bhagavan says in in two passages in day by day recorded by devaraja mudliya there are two very illustrative uh passages that is on 8 11 45 that's 8th of november 1945 in the morning um what devraj mudli has recorded is when on 2 11 45 mr roy asked the best way of killing the ego bhagavan said to ask the mind to kill the mind is like making the thief the policeman it will it will he will go with you and pretend to catch the thief but nothing will be gained so you must turn the mind inwards and see where the mind rises from, and then it will cease to exist. In reference to this answer, Mr. Tambi Dorai of Jaffna, who has been living in Palakotu for over a year, asked me whether asking the uh, mind to turn within and seek its source is not also employing the mind. So I put this doubt before Bhagavan, and Bhagavan said, of course we are employing the mind. It is well known and admitted, but only with the help of the mind, the mind has to be killed. But instead of setting about saying there is a mind and I want to kill it, you begin to seek the source of the mind and you find that the mind does not exist at all. The mind turned outwards results in thoughts and objects. Turned inwards, it becomes itself the self. Such a mind is sometimes called a rupa mind or sudamanas. A rupa, a rupa manas means um, formless mind. Sudamanas means pure mind. Um, so, when so long as the mind is turned outwards, as Bhagavan says, it results in thoughts and activities. That is, the outward going movement of the mind is what creates all of this. But when the same mind is turned inwards, it remains as it actually is. That's what he means by saying it becomes itself the self. I think the term he would have used here for the self is Atma Sarupa. So the same 
what is called mind when it is faced out, facing outwards is called Atmaswarupa when it is facing inwards. And there's a similar passage later on, on, um, on the, um, what date is this? On the 11th of, Janu of, of January 1946 in the afternoon, um, uh, a visitor asked Bhagavan, what is the difference between the mind and the self? Bhagavan answered, there is no difference. The mind turned inwards is the self. Turned outwards, it becomes the ego and all the world. The ego and all the world means subject and object. Only when we turn our attention outwards, we become the subject and we project the world. Um, and then Bhagavan gives a couple of analogies. The cotton made into various cloths, we call by various names. The gold made into various ornaments, we call by various names. But all the cloths are cotton, and all the ornaments gold. The one is real, the many are names and forms. That is, in this, these analogies, cotton is the substance. The various uh, garments made of cotton, the um, shirts and trousers and uh, coats and so on, these are, these are the forms, but the substance is cotton. Likewise with gold. Gold is the substance, the various ornaments, the, the rings and bangles and necklaces and uh, anklets and uh, tiaras and whatever else you make, make of gold, they are all various forms. The, so what Bhagavan is implying here, the substance is real, when he said the one is real, the many are names and forms, it implies in this context that the substance is real, the forms are unreal. So what is the substance of the mind? The substance of the mind is only satchit, which is the self, that is our real nature. When that mind, when that chit element is turned outwards, it, we call it mind. When it turns within to see itself, it remains as it actually is. So this is why Bhagavan says, if we invest, I mean, he said this in so many places, but he, he um, for example, in verse 25 of Uludhanapadu, he says, if we seek this ego, it takes flight. So who is to seek the ego? It is, obviously it is ego. If ego turns its attention back on itself to see who am I, it thereby takes flight. What he means by takes flight or runs away is that it subsides and dissolves back into its source. Because the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish, and be active by attending to things other than itself. But to uh, subside and uh, sink and dissolve back into its source by attending to itself. So self-investigation is not an activity. It is a cessation of activity. It requires effort but it is not an activity. It requires effort to hold firmly onto our being, because the natural flow of the mind is to go outwards. So we are, so to speak, swimming against the current, or in the analogy I used earlier, it's like holding onto the rock in the middle of a, of a flood, but is sweeping everything away. So long as you're holding onto the rock, you're not, you're not caught up in the movement of the river. If you let go of the rock, you at once get swept away by the river. Likewise with the mind. So long as we're holding on to our being, we are not carried away by any movement or activity. 
as soon as we lose our hold on our being, so long as we let go, of, as soon as we let go of ourselves, we again get carried outwards by the, the ever outward flowing. Uh, I mean, the very nature of the mind is to flow outwards. So we shouldn't allow ourselves to flow outwards. We need to turn within and hold firmly onto our being. That is. That requires effort, obviously, because we are, we are to resist being carried away by our vishayabhasanas. But though it requires effort, it is not an activity. It is an effort not to do anything, but an effort to be as we actually are. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Uh, does anyone have any questions about this or any other uh, topic of Bhagavan, aspects of Bhagavan's teachings? Uh, yes, Michael, there are a few questions. The first one is, did Bhagavan consider the world an illusion? If yes, who was projecting the world and why? Did he talk and write about this? Yes, uh, Bhagavan said the world is an illusion. The world doesn't actually exist, it just seems to exist. It, Bhagavan said, what we now take to be the waking state is actually just a dream. Who is it who projects a dream? In, in dream, we see ourselves as a person, and a person in a world. Who is the one who has projected the world? Obviously, the person we take ourselves to be in the dream has not projected the dream world, because that person is a part of the dream projection. So who is it who has projected the dream? Only the dreamer. The dreamer is ego. When we dream, we project a whole dream world, but we dream ourselves as a part of that dream world. That is, as soon as we begin dreaming, we see the world we have projected from the perspective of a person whom we seem to be. That is, in dream, we always are a person in the dream world. That is why, though the dream is our own projection, we seem to have no control over it. If we see some some terrible thing, if we see a, a war going on or a famine or a pandemic, we can't just wish it away. Or if we're being chased by a monster or something, we can't wish the monster away. Why? Because though we are the creator of the dream world, we are not experiencing ourselves as the creator because we mistake ourselves to be a creature. We mistake ourselves to be a, a part of our dream world. So, so long as we seem to be a part of this dream world, we, 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 our powers are limited. So, who has created this present world? Not, not the person we seem to be. The I that is aware of itself as I am this person, that is the one who has created this dream world. So, the, the, project, the one who is projected is not the person we seem to be, but ego, the I that is aware of itself as I am this person. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. So it's very, very important in Bhagavan's teaching, but we recognize the distinction between ego and whatever person we take ourselves to be. The person we take ourselves to be, as Bhagavan says, is a bundle of five sheaves. The five sheaves are the physical form of the body, the life that animates the body, and the mind, intellect, and will that function within the body. These we experience as one whole. This is the person. 
I am Michael. Michael consists of body, of body, life, mind, intellect, and will. If life goes away, all that is left is a is a corpse. That that corpse is no longer Michael. That is, we we then take it away, dig a hole and bury it, or burn it, or we dispose of it in some way, because that is not the person. But but the complete person is all the five sheaves. Only when all the five sheaves are together do we say it's a person. So whenever we experience ourselves as a person, we always experience ourselves as all these five sheaves. So this person is not what we actually are. This person was born a few years ago, and a few years hence, it's going to a few years, or we don't know how long we've got, maybe the next minute, we're going to die. This person is going to die. But that is not what we are. We are the the eye that is aware of itself as I am this person, that is ego. And even that ego is not what we actually are. That is ego is the adjunct conflated awareness, I am this person, I am this body. What is real in that mixture, that conflation, is the I am element. I am is what we actually are. I am is our being. I am is our existence. I am is our awareness. The, the I am this person, I am Michael, I am whoever, that is an identification. The identification is false. The identification is as much an illusion as the world. But what is what is uh, what is real in that uh, in that identification, that conflated mixture of of uh, the awareness I and this body that we now take ourselves to be, what is real is only I am. I am is such it. It is pure being and pure awareness. But in ego, I am is seemingly mixed and conflated with adjuncts. That seeming, that mixture is what is called chit jadagranti. The chit portion is I am. Chit means pure awareness. But jada portion, jada means non-awareness. The jada portion is this body consisting of these five sheaths. That is, the body has no is not aware. But life is the prana is not aware. The mind is not aware. The mind in the sense of the, the thoughts, feelings, perceptions, memories, and so on. They're not aware. They're all objects of awareness. The workings of the intellect are not aware. Intellect and its workings are not aware. They are things known by us. The the will, the, the anandamaya kosha or karana sarira, which consists of vasanas. Uh, like that, vasanas are the seeds, the inclinations that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on. They're collectively called the will or chittam, or also it's called anandamaya kosha or karana sarira. These are all things known by us. So ego is the subject. What ego takes itself to be is an object. So it's a, the object is jada, devoid of awareness. The subject is endowed with awareness. But ego is the conflation of these two. If you separate, if we separate ourselves from the adjuncts that we now mistake ourselves to be, what remains is the pure I am. That is not ego. So we are, seem to be ego only when we are mixed and conflated with adjuncts. By turning our attention within, we are holding on to our being. To, to the extent to which we hold on to our being, we let go of everything else. That is, the more we attend to ourselves, the less we attend to anything else. 
the adjuncts that we now mistake to be ourselves are not holding on to us. We are holding on to them. So if instead of holding these adjuncts, we try to hold on to I am, to our mere being, because we're no longer holding them, the adjuncts will drop off. And if we hold on to ourselves firmly enough and keenly enough, if we focus our attention on ourselves so keenly, but we cease to be aware of anything else, we then experience ourselves as pure awareness. As soon as we experience ourselves as pure awareness, which is what we actually are, ego, which is the false awareness, I am this body, is thereby annihilated. So I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. But just to clarify, Michael, uh, the ego, which is uh, the I am, which identifies with this body and yeah. uh, and uh, various other things um, as I, uh, that is this entire world of experience which we have. It is the ego. Uh, sort of the ego is is that which is experiencing this entire world yeah. of experience, including this particular body and mind as Shalini or Michael yes. or whatever. Yes and experiencing all the other uh, yeah. beings in the world and so on. Yeah. So it's the entirety of the world of experience, uh, stream and so on. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, within e which everything appears. Ego yeah. is the experiencer, but nothing that is experienced has any existence independent of ego, because all these things, they seem to exist, but only in the view of ourself as ego. This is why Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. Everything means everything that's experienced, all phenomena, all uh, objects, all vishayas, all, all, everything that appears and disappears comes into existence only when ego comes into existence, because they all e seem to exist only in the view of ego. Uh, if ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Because everything exists only in the view of ego, so nothing can exist in the absence of ego. This is why Bhagavan says, the body, um, the mind, body and world seem to exist only in waking and dream. In sleep, there's no mind, no body, no world, because there's no ego to see them. And then in that verse 26, he goes on to say, Ego itself is everything. Why does he say ego is everything? Because, because everything exists only in the view of ego. So ego is, everything borrows its semi-existence from the semi-existence of ourself as ego. That is, this world has no existence whatsoever, except in our perception, except in our awareness. So this world isn't anything other than ourself. We are seeing ourselves as the world. The dream, in other words, the dreaming mind is seeing itself as a dream world. And then in the last sentence of that verse 26, he says, therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. Investigating what it is means investigating what this ego is. That is, instead of looking out at the world, we turn our attention back to ourselves to see who am I or what am I. That is, Bhagavan says, that is giving up everything. How is it giving up everything? Because to the extent to which we attend to ourselves, to that extent will ego subside. 
If we attend to ourselves keenly enough, ego will subside and dissolve completely and forever in its source. That is manonasa. And in that state, in the absence of ego, nothing else can exist because everything exists only in the view of ego. So the ultimate truth is ajata. The ultimate truth is when, when we look within keenly enough, we see there's no such thing as ego at all. When ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Then the ultimate truth is what actually exists always exists as it is without ever undergoing any change. That is why it is said that the ultimate truth is ajata. Nothing has ever come into existence. Nothing has ever arisen. Because it all, arise, it all seems to arise only in the view of ego. But if we investigate ego, we find there's no such thing at all. We seem to be ego only so long as we're looking outwards. When we look within, there's no ego to be found. We remain of the, the pure awareness I am, which is Atmasvarupa, Brahman. So it's so, so simple what Bhagavan is teaching us, but so very deep and profound. Um, the next question is, I was brought up in a Hindu family in North India in a religious environment full of ritualistic and devotional aspects which didn't work for me when life got tough. I recently discovered Advaita, but still, when I joined related communities, I still uh, um, these are still full of familiar aspects, chanting, praises, devoteeship, etc., that cause some resistance in my mind as to if even Advaita is the path or just another modified version of, of popularized Hindu religion of India. Um, Advaita is more than just a religion. Yes, often, um, often you, that is these, all these practices, that is these practices are not totally divorced from Advaita. Ultimately, all, that is we, Bhagavan has, Bhagavan was never opposed to all these ritualistic practices. But what he made clear is when we, when we go to temples or churches or mosques or gurudwaras or synagogues or whatever, people, there are two possible reasons for going. Either we're going for the love of God or we're going for the love of what we can get from God. The vast majority of us worship God for what we can get from him. So people pray to God for, for health, wealth, and all these things, and uh, for not only for uh, everything favorable in this life, but also a good life afterwards, all these sort of things. This is in all religions. It's not just Hinduism, in every religion, in Christianity, in Islam, in Buddhism, in uh, Jainism, Sikhism, the majority of people are praying to God or to whatever, to Buddha or to whatever their idea of some higher power. They're praying to that for betterment of their life. Over time, we all undergo a, a, a process of spiritual growth. So after some time, we begin to, these material things begin to lose their attraction. And we begin to appreciate, but if God is so kind to give me whatever I pray for, surely God is greater than whatever he gives me. So rather than 
loving God for the sake of what I can get from God, I should love God for his own sake. So slowly the Vishaya Bhakti becomes true Deva Bhakti. That is the love for what we, Vishaya Bhakti means for the things we can get from God. Uh, rather than having devotion for the things we can get from God, we get devotion for God himself. Once we love God for the sake of, for his own sake, we want to express our love for him. And generally that love, because we're familiar with expressing our love through actions, we, we do puja, we do japa and dhyana. These are all practices to, that is, these practices are neither karmiya nor nishkarmiya. It depends on the attitude which we, with which we've done them. Ramakrishna Paramahamsa worshipped Kali. So many people worship Kali, but can their worship of Kali be compared with Ramakrishna's worship of Kali? No, because for Ramakrishna, he, he considered himself just like a simple child, and um, Kali was his mother, and he, he worshipped her with love for Kali alone he had. He wasn't worshipping for what he can get from Kali, he just loved Kali for her own sake. So that is pure Nishkamiya Bhakti. That is how, the type of Bhakti we need. So when we have that Nishkamiya Bhakti, we begin by trying to worship God through rituals, through repeating his name, Japa, and also by meditating upon him. But with, in the course of time, our mind is further matured, and we come to understand but God cannot be anything other than ourselves, or we cannot be anything other than God, because God is the infinite whole. So if God is the infinite whole, how can I be something separate from him? If I'm separate from God, then God is thereby limited. God includes everything except me. <laughs> That's absurd. So if, if we understand that God is infinite, we understand that ultimately God alone is. There's no, there's no me or you or world or anything. God is what we actually are. So once we come to the understanding that God is not something outside ourselves, God is what is always shining in us as our own being, as I am, then our mind turns within and we begin to investigate ourselves. So all these other practices, they all are part of, they're, they're like the kindergarten level of um, spirituality. They're the beginning. We, we have to you now you may be studying for a PhD, or you may have complete got, got your PhD and be doing postdoctoral research. But where did you start? You started off in kindergarten learning ABC or R R E E U U, whatever it is depending on the language, and you learned your times table and everything. We all had to start from there. And slowly, slowly, as we progress through our schooling and through college and university and everything, we get higher and higher levels of education. It's the same in spiritual path. So uh, it would be meaningless for a, a, someone who is studying for, for um, doing postdoctoral studies in a university. If someone says, oh, all these kindergartens, this is unnecessary, obviously it's necessary. If we don't have kindergarten, we wouldn't have universities. So all these things, they all have a part to play. But Advaita itself is not a religion. It is beyond religion. Because in what are the, what are the characteristics of religion? In all religions, there are certain things you have to believe. 
In order to be a Christian, you have to believe that Christ died on the cross to um, uh, um, to uh, yes, uh, save you from sin. If you want to be a Muslim, you had to believe in the Quran and in Muhammad, and that Muhammad was the, the last messenger of God and so on. If you want to be a Buddhist, you have to believe that uh, the, the Buddha was the enlightened one. If you want to be a Hindu, well, there's lots of variety in Hinduism, you can believe anything, but there will be something, you, you believe in something to do with the Hindu religion. Um, I mean, the Hindu, Hinduism is a vast ocean, but everyone, all Hindus believe in something. Some uh, some set, they have some set of beliefs, some set of practices, and most of all, with all these religions, if you notice, there's an identification. I am a Christian, I am a Muslim, I am Shia, I am Sunni, I'm Catholic, I'm Protestant, I'm Vaishnava, I'm Shaiva, I'm uh, Buddhist, I'm uh, Mahayana Buddhist, I'm Theravadan Buddhist, I'm Zen Buddhist, I'm this, that. Uh, so all these religions, firstly, they require certain beliefs, because if you don't believe in the religion, you can't, I can't say I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in Christ. It would be meaningless. So we have to believe in something and you have to identify yourself as something. Whereas a Dvaita, the pure Advaita is taught by Bhagavan, the first thing we have to question is our identity. Who am I? Now I seem to be Michael. I seem to be someone who was born in a Christian family and later got um, uh, was drawn to uh, the path of Advaita. But so long as I think I am this person, I am an Advaitin, that's a false identification. Advaita, anyone who says I am Advaita hasn't really understood Advaita. I'm an Advaitin, hasn't really understood Advaita because Advaita is, is making us question what we actually are. We are not. We are not Christian. We are not Buddhist. We're not a Hindu. What we actually are is just pure being. So Advaita takes us out of religion, beyond religion, to the ultimate uh, truth. So Advaita is the. We can say it's the pinnacle of all religions, but it's beyond all the limitations of religion. So Bhagavan, among the followers of Bhagavan. The people from all different types of religious background and also atheist background, people of all kinds were attracted to Bhagavan because they saw in they saw in Bhagavan what was the ultimate aim of their particular religion, whatever it may be. So Bhagavan had Hindu devotees, obviously, he had Muslim devotees, he had Sikh, Jain devotees, he had Christian devotees, Buddhist devotees, people from all different types of religious and cultural backgrounds were attracted to Bhagavan. Not everyone, the vast majority of Christians, the vast majority of Hindus, the vast majority of Buddhists or whatever will not be attracted to Bhagavan. But whatever may be our religious or cultural background, or even if we come from a, uh, an atheist background, we can be attracted to Bhagavan's teachings because his teachings are beyond all these things. Ultimately, what Bhagavan is telling, what did Bhagavan's basic teaching, what is the one thing all of us are seeking, whatever be our religion, whatever be our beliefs, the one thing we're all seeking is happiness. Whatever we may be making effort for, whether we're making effort to earn a lot of money or to gain lots of degrees or to have a nice, happy family life or whatever we may be aspiring for, why do we aspire for these things? 
because we think these things will make us happy. So the one thing that is motivating all activity, not only all human activity, but the activity of all jivas, from, from the gods in heaven down to the, the, the smallest insect, all are seeking happiness. Because, why? Because, as Bhagavan explained, happiness is our own real nature. So we can never be satisfied until we attain the infinite happiness that we actually are. So we're all seeking happiness. The problem is, most of us, or at least till now, we have been seeking happiness in the wrong place. We're still seeking happiness in the wrong place. So long as our mind is going outwards, why is it going outward? It's going outward seeking happiness in this or in that. So Bhagavan says, happiness does not lie outside. Happiness lies within. Happiness is your own real nature. That is, so we, we all want to be happy. Whatever be our religion, whatever be our politics, whatever be uh, our race, the color of our skin, whatever be our species, whether they are human or cows or dogs or cats or ants or bees, all of us or gods in heaven, we are all seeking happiness. Bhagavan's teachings is how to attain that happiness. That happiness doesn't lie outside, it lies within. So we when we come to this path, we should look upon all other religious practices, we should see them for what they are. They are all different ways in which people are seeking happiness. And there are so many different levels of uh, development with, uh, among people who are following different religions, so we can't generalize about religion. So yes, there are many people, even among devotees of Bhagavan, they still like to do puja and all these things. Many of the groups of Bhagavan's devotees that meet around the world, they do pujas and everything. That's all fine. It's good to have been devoted to Bhagavan. But what is the best way to be, if, if we are truly devoted to Bhagavan, we should be devoted to his teachings. And his teaching is not to do puja, japa, dhyana, or any of these things. Bhagavan didn't discourage people from doing these things if they want to do. But for those who wanted to go deeper, he said, we need to go back within. So if, we, if, if our devotion to Bhagavan is deep, we won't be satisfied with just the, um, doing pujas and such things. We will, we will want to try to surrender ourselves and go deep within. So we shouldn't look down on these different practices. They all have a place. Just like someone in a, a PhD student shouldn't look down on children in a kindergarten, because one day those children in the kindergarten may be winning the Nobel Prize for all we know. So it all, every Nobel Prize winner started off in kindergarten. So we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't look down on different uh, levels of spiritual development. And ultimately, all religions, all human practices, whether religious or non-religious, they're all part of this process of, uh, of spiritual development, through which we are all going through, until finally we turn within and merge back into our source and then remain as we always are eternally. I hope this is an adequate answer to that question. Next question is, <clears throat> I believe that in order to be liberated and be united with the self, there is the main obstacle, which is ignorance. Ignorance about what, about what infinite happiness means. 
um, about what um, about what undivided, unbroken, and everlasting, eternal, and so on means. It is Arunachala Bhagavan who is capable of removing this ignorance in a split second. But maybe when we are ready or ripe for it, is that correct? And can we pray for the removal of ignorance constantly? It is like when Bhagavan says in the marital garland, in the refrain, Arunachala, shine. Um, uh, Arunachala Shiva, I think is very refrain. Um, uh, the, when you say ignorance is the main obstacle, who is it who is ignorant? You cannot have ignorance without someone who is ignorant. So the, the root problem is not just the ignorance, it's the one who is ignorant. In fact, there is no ignorance. Who is it who is ignorant? It is ego. And there is no ignorance other than ego. So what is referred to in a classical Advaita as avidya or Agnana, Bhagavan has made clear it is nothing but ego. Ignorance is the very nature of ego. The fundamental, what is ignorance? It's ignorance of our real nature. Why are we, are we ignorant of our real nature? Yes and no. That is, we always know that we are. The problem is we don't know what we are. Why do we not know what we are? Because we mistake ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. So what is called avidya or ajnana is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. Who is aware I am this body? Ego. So as ego, we're always aware I am this body, so we're not aware of ourselves as we actually are. What we actually are is nothing but I. I am I. But we are not aware of ourselves now as just as I. We're aware of ourselves as I and all these adjuncts. Um, so the ignorance is nothing but ego. Um, because we rise as ego, we therefore do not experience the infinite happiness that we actually are. So all other forms of ego, of sorry, all other forms of ignorance are, are the result of our rising as ego. So the mula vidya, the root ignorance, is only ego, as Bhagavan made clear in so many ways. So what we what we need to the ignorance we need to remove is this false awareness. I am this body. That which is of, aware of that is ego. So so long as we rise as ego, we will always be aware. I am this body. So we, ignorance is the very nature of ego. So praying to get rid of ignorance means praying to get rid of ego. Yes, certainly we can pray to Bhagavan. Bhagavan has shown us in Akshramla and other places how we should pray, what we should pray for. But prayer is not just words. It's not just a matter of repeating Akshramlaya or something. That is also good because meditating on what on, on these prayers that Bhagavan has taught us will, uh, will make us yearn for this more and more and more and immerse us in, the, in this longing. But Prayer is more than just words. Merely repeating words is not prayer. Prayer comes from the heart. It's the, it's, it's the, it's the, the yearning in the heart. If we truly yearn 
for the annihilation of ego, we should do what Bhagavan tells us. What Bhagavan tells us is, turn within and thereby surrender yourself. In one place in Maharshi's Gospel, when Bhagavan is talking about surrender, someone asks him, um, if I surrender, then is no prayer necessary? Bhagavan said, prayer is itself a mighty, sorry, surrender is itself a mighty prayer. Because when we are praying, we are we are praying for something. But when we surrender ourselves, that is, I mean, what we should be praying for is the love to surrender ourselves. So surrendering ourselves is the very fulfillment of the prayer. And if we truly, if I merely say, oh, Bhagavan, make me surrender to you, make me surrender to you. But if I continue going outwards, I'm, I, my prayer is not sincere. If I really want Bhagavan, to enable me to surrender myself to him, I should try my best to surrender myself to him. Bhagavan's grace is certainly helping. But as Bhagavan made clear, grace is not something that up in heaven that's going to descend on our head one day. Grace is ever present in our heart. Grace is Bhagavan himself, and he is ever shiny in our heart as I. So because he is within us, his grace works through us. So, the effort we make to turn within, to see who am I, and thereby to surrender this false I called ego, that effort is made, that is, the effort we make is grace working through us. So, we need, if we want to yield ourselves to his grace, we need to cooperate by trying ourselves to turn within. So, the best of all prayers is turning our attention within. When our mind comes outwards, when we find we don't have sufficient love to turn within, then by all means we should cry out to Bhagavan with a weeping heart, give me this love, give me more love to turn within. And then we should continue trying to turn within. There's no use of saying, um, give me the love to turn within and continuing to rush outwards. We should try our best. So the, the prayer is sincere to the extent that we really try and turn within, we really uh, try to surrender ourselves. Otherwise, our prayer is just words. If we're not really trying, if we don't really want to turn within and merge back into our source, if we really want to, we will try to do so. Uh, if, if we don't try to do so, we don't really want to do so. So prayer is good. But prayer is no substitute. Prayer is to support us in our effort to turn within. It is not a substitute for turning within. It's not a substitute for surrender. We can truly surrender ourselves only to the extent to which we turn within. So if we truly want to surrender to Bhagavan, we should turn within and try to, and thereby subside back within into the heart. And the heart is Bhagavan. He is that which is shining within us as I am. I hope that's an adequate answer to that question. The next question is, uh, can you share Sri Maharishi's perspective on love, which often has a lover-beloved perspective in both the Sufi and Bhakti traditions? Thank you. <clears throat> um, Love is our own real nature. Love is what we actually are. Love is Bhagavan. Love is our natural. 
to understand Bhagavan's view of love, well, there are so many clues are given by Bhagavan, particularly in Aranacha Stuti Panchakam. But uh, one verse very clearly illustrates Bhagavan's view of love. He sings in verse 101 of Aksharamlai, Ambu vilali pol amburu vunilene anbai kare tarol aranachala. Like ice uh, melting in water, melt me as love in you, the form of love. That is, love is our own real nature, just like water is the real nature of ice. But ice is a solidified form of water. So, as a jiva, as ego, we are like a block of ice. To really experience that love, we need to melt and dissolve in it. Yes, in the in the early stages of the path of bhakti, love seems to be love for another. We take God to be something other than ourselves. But in when we come to Bhagavan's path, which is the path of Advaita, we understand that God or Bhagavan or Guru is not something other than ourselves. God is our own being. So loving God means loving ourselves, not loving ourselves as a person, the person we seem to be, loving ourselves as we actually are. There are many theologians, Christian theologians and other theologians, who argue that love is always for another. That is a, a fallacious argument because the one thing they overlook is, as Bhagavan says, we all have greatest love for ourselves. Why do we have greatest love for ourselves? Because self-love is our real nature. But the problem is, there's no wrong with self-love. The problem is, we, because we take ourselves to be this person, we love this person as if it were ourselves, which is where we go wrong. What we ourself, what we actually are, is the infinite whole. So, so long as you have, there are two, a lover and a beloved, that love is divided. So long as we love God as something other than ourselves, our love for God is imperfect because we still love ourselves. We still retain, we, we, we cannot but love ourselves because loving ourselves is our very nature. Bhagavan said this in the, uh, right at the beginning, in the very first sentence of Nana. He says, um, uh, Sakala Jiva Galum, Dukumen Badindri Sukum. Uh, since all living beings, wait a second, I'll just get the, I'll get it. Um, um, <clears throat> Sakala Jeevagalam Dukamembadindri Epodum Sukamayirka Virumbadalam. Since all sentient beings, all jivas, uh, like, want, or love, or want to be always happy without what is called misery. Since for everyone, the greatest love is only for oneself. That is, we all have more love for ourselves than for anything else. Since happiness is alone the cause of love, that is, we love those things that make us happy. So why do we love ourselves? Because happiness is our real nature. Um, then he goes on to say, Manamatra nidrail dinam anubhavikam tansubhavamana sukhate 
In order to attain that happiness, which is our own real nature, which we experience daily in sleep, which is devoid of mind, oneself knowing oneself is necessary. So we all have the cause for love is happiness. That is, whatever we think will make us happy, we love. We love ourselves because happiness is our real nature. So ultimately, the highest love is not the, the love of one for another. The highest love is Advaita Ambu. That is the, the, the love in which they're not two. The love in which uh, we love God as our own self. That is the highest love. In other words, the love, is, the love in which there's nothing other than ourselves for us to love, that is the pinnacle of love. In Bhagavan's view, he alone exists. So he doesn't see us as something other than himself. He sees us as himself. Because he sees us as himself, he has love for us as himself. So Bhagavan has infinite love for each and every one of us. He doesn't love us just because we think we're a good person. <laughs> Whether we are a good person or not is another matter. He loves all equally. He loves the good people and the bad people all equally. His love is totally impartial. Why? Because he doesn't see us as the people that we take ourselves to be. He sees us as we actually are. So the, the, the bad person is as much um, Brahman as the good person. We all, that is what we all actually are, is only Brahman, Atmasarupa. That is Bhagavan. So Bhagavan sees us as himself and therefore loves us as himself. So the highest love is to see all as oneself. To see all as oneself is this, means to see that oneself alone exists. What a previously appeared as all is actually only oneself. Oneself is one and undivided, so it's not all, but what appears as all is actually oneself. So we are not all this, but all this is nothing other than ourself. Just like the, the rope is not a snake, but the snake is nothing but a rope. So yes, Bhagavan had plenty to say about love. And if you want to understand uh, more about Bhagavan's view on love, there's nothing better than to study carefully Akshramlai and the other four hymns. Because those are the, in those, Bhagavan poured out his love for Arunachala. And who is Arunachala? Arunachala is that which is dancing in the heart as I, as he says. So Arunachala, though he seemed to be Worshipping Arunachala is something other than himself. In so many verses, it is clear he's emphasizing Arunachala with that which is in my heart. Even when the five sense thieves enter my heart, Aham uh, oh no, no, sorry, um, yes, I'm Bulakalba, Ahatinil Puhumbo. Uh, when the five sense thieves enter my heart, were you not still in my heart? So Arunacha is ever shiny in our heart. So the Arunacha Bhagavan is praying to, 
though that Aranaxia appears outwardly in the form of a hill, inwardly it's ever shining as our own being. That Bhagavan implies in so many ways throughout uh, Aksharamalai and uh, all the five hymns. In the second verse of Aranaxia Pancharatnam, he says explicitly, you always dance in the heart as I, therefore heart is your very name. So Bhagavan didn't see Aranaxia as other than himself, but Singing from the perspective of a devotee, he was praying to Arunachala as if he still felt himself to be separated from Arunachala. Arunachala is never separate from us, but so long as we rise as ego, we seem to be separate from him. Though he is ever our own being, he is ever that which is shining in our heart as I. So I hope this adequately answers that question. The next question is, once the Self has been realized, yes, we will revert to Satchitanand, but until that time, this path of Self-inquiry, understanding illusoriness, etc., seems a bit lonely and disconnected from the world and the people we see at the moment. This makes continuous effort towards Self-inquiry very difficult. We are never alone on this path. because. We, we feel lonely when we identify ourselves as I am this person. This person is very alone. There are so many billions of people in this world, and they're all running after so many material things. So I feel all lonely trying to follow this path. But loneliness is, is, a, is, a, is a state of mind of ego. That is the ego who has the state of mind called loneliness. But we should always remember we are never alone on this path because Bhagavan is our own reality. Bhagavan is our own being. Bhagavan is that which is shining in our heart as I. So he is ever there, ever helping us. That is because we've risen as ego, we talk about him as, as a third person, as he. But actually, he is the reality of the first person. So we are never truly alone on this path, alone in the normal sense of the term, because Bhagavan is always with us. When we reach the goal, we will find Bhagavan is our own self. Bhagavan is nothing. Bhagavan is what we actually are, and that there are no others. But in that state of uh, pure awareness, there's no loneliness, because loneliness is a... Because the mind is outward going, it's constantly craving for the company and of, of others. We... we even when we don't have other people with us, we crave the company of our own thoughts and feelings and so So the mind is always dwelling on otherness. But what Bhagavan actually is, Bhagavan is ever ananya, he's ever non-other, he's our own being. So the loneliness arises out of mind. When we're asleep, we're all alone. But does anyone feel lonely while asleep? Oh, I don't like to go to sleep, it's so lonely. No, we don't think like that, because there's no others there, so there's no scope for any loneliness. There's no ego to feel any loneliness. And others exist only in the view of ego. So we need to, so long as we are following this path, so long there still seem to be others, we need to remember 
Bhagavan is never other. Though he may seem to us to be other, he's not actually other than ourselves. He is our own real nature. He is what we actually are. So he is always with us. So we are never alone on this path. I hope that answered that question adequately. That's why we need to develop this love, more and more love for Bhagavan, and to understand that Bhagavan is ever-present with us. The more love we have for him, the more trust we will have. The more we will love to turn within and to hold him firmly in our heart. Hold him means hold I am, because he is that which is shining in our heart as I am. So if we have true love in our heart, we will never feel lonely, because Bhagavan is always with us. Next question is, sometimes in the self-inquiry, I try to use the Nethi Nethi approach on a regular and frequent basis, but each such negation is very temporary and makes me wonder if I should start to create a physical list of what I am not. Will that help? Neti Neti is not Atma Vichara. Neti Neti is Anatma Vichara. Because all the things that we are not, we are, we are, we are, we analyze what we are, we, we analyze these things to understand that they are not what we actually are. So neti neti means rejecting everything that is anatma. So we first need to understand that we are not this, not this. But once the, the purpose of neti neti, that is the initial analysis that is necessary. We need to analyze and understand what we, what we are not in order to understand what we are. If, if, we, if we haven't understood, but we are not this body, not this mind, not any of these phenomena, any of these adjuncts, when we try to investigate ourselves, we'll be investigating these things that we take ourselves to be. So neti neti is very essential. That is the initial manana that is necessary. To, we need to understand why we are not this uh, body or mind or anything. Once we've understood that, we don't have to continue repeating it to ourselves. As Bhagavan said, thinking I am that, not this, is due to weakness of mind or due to absence of strength, lack of strength. So if we have done, if we have understood the purpose of neti neti, we will understand we are not this body, mind, or anything else but appears. What we actually are is only that fundamental awareness, I am. Having understood that, we then need to hold on to that, hold on to our own being, hold on to I am. That is Atma Vichara. So understanding what we are not, is, is a necessary preliminary, but it is not Atma Vichara. Atma Vichara begins when we understand what we actually are, but what we actually are is just that fundamental awareness I am, and therefore turn our attention within. So Atma Vichara, as Bhagavan says in that sentence of the 16th paragraph of Nana that I read earlier, Sada Kalamam Manate Atma Vilvetirupatikutan Atma Vichara Mendrupaya. The name Atma Vichara refers only to always keeping the mind on oneself. 
So thinking I'm not this, I'm not that, that is not keeping our mind on ourselves. That's allowing our mind to still think about this body and mind. Once we've understood that we're this body, not this body or mind or any of these, um, any of the five she's, we should stop attending to these things and attend to what we actually are, namely I am. That alone is Atmavichara. I hope that's a clear answer to that question. A further question. If one has become aware of illness in the body, should one just allow it to be what it is and stay focused on the vastness of being? Yes, illness is all for the body. Um, the illness comes according to destiny. The treatment for the illness may also come according to destiny. So we shouldn't, some, some people uh, who, who don't understand these things think, oh, we shouldn't take medicines. That's absurd. Obviously, if the, the same destiny that brings the disease also brings the medicines. So we, we sh if, we are, if, if medicines are available for our disease, by all means, take the disease. But whatever be the outcome, some med sometimes medicines work, sometimes they don't work. Sometimes the medicines, we go to a doctor and they prescribe medicines, and it's the wrong medicines. But the reasonable thing to do if you've got a med if you're if you've got an illness you take what is believed to be the appropriate medicine supposing you're hungry what do you do you eat food so that's natural we shouldn't but we shouldn't attach too much importance to these things we should understand if the illness is there it's given by bhagavan if medicine is there that's also given by bhagavan whether the illness is cured or not cured Whatever happens, nothing can happen that is against the will of Bhagavan. Whatever happens, whatever experiences we undergo are all given by Bhagavan for our own spiritual benefit. So we, we need to learn to be indifferent to these things. Of course, it's not easy to be indifferent to these things because we actually experience this body as I. So when the body is in terrible pain or whatever, it, 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 we feel the pain, but even when we're feeling intense pain, do we not exist? Are we not aware of our existence? Who is who is aware of this pain? I am. I am in pain, we say, but actually the pain is something other than ourselves. Because we identify with the body, we think the pain is, uh, is, is affecting us. Actually, if we hold on to our being, we can find a place within our own heart where we can isolate ourselves from all these things, from all mental turmoil and all physical suffering. We can isolate ourselves from all these things by re taking refuge in our own heart. So, um, yes, we all undergo disease sometimes. Some of us experience disease. Some people spend their whole life, their, their body just happens to be unhealthy for one reason or another. So they spend all their life in a diseased state. But whether, whether the body is diseased or healthy, I am. That is the one thing we are always aware of. The awareness of the body comes and goes. However, seriously ill the body may be, it troubles us in the waking state, 
but in sleep we are unaffected by it, we are untouched by it. So we need to retreat to that place in our heart where we, where we can be untouched by this body and mind. That is, that is, what, that is what this path of self-investigation and self-surrender is all about, about withdrawing back within, retreating back within, taking refuge in the fortress of Bhagavan's feet. The fortress of his feet is our own heart. The next question, Michael. Uh, in the most recent video on your YouTube channel, you have expounded on Uladu Narpadu Anubandham verses. As part of those verses, Bhagavan says you have to cherish the association of jnanis. Though on the highest level, the best association is the association with Atma, that is Atma Sangha. Yes. My question is around being in the physical presence of Arunachala. As Arunachala and Bhagavan are one, can we say that we are sitting in the front? Um, sorry. As Arunachala and Bhagavan are one, can we say that when we are sitting in front of Arunachala, we are in fact sitting in the presence of Bhagavan, just like some devotees were sitting in the physical presence of Bhagavan during his bodily presence? The physical presence of Arunachala gives all of Bhagwan's, at least to me, gives all of Bhagwan's devotees relief that I have a form that I can truly consider Bhagwan. Though Bhagwan is ever available within me, the physical presence of, of Arunachala is a consolation we have. Am I thinking wrongly? When we look at, at Arunachala, how should we look? What should our view be? Yes, certainly. That is, Arunachala is Bhagavan in the form of a hill. Bhagavan is Arunachala in human form. But what is the real form of Arunachala? What is the real form of Bhagavan? That is what is always shining in our heart as I. So as long as our mind is going outwards, the name and form of Arunachala, the name and form of Bhagavan can be a great support to us. But why did Arunachala uh, appear in the first place? It was to crush the egos of Brahma and Vishnu, each of whom was saying, I am the greatest. It appears a great column of fire. And eventually, because the, the, when Brahma and Vishnu's pride was, uh, was subdued, they then prayed to him, so that this world can withstand you, you should take on a lackluster form. So that vast column of fire contracted into the form of the hill. What are we to understand from such stories? The very purpose of this name and form of Arunachala is to eradicate ego. And why did the same Arunachala appear in the human form of Bhagavan? To teach us the very same thing. Bhagavan is all about annihilation of ego. So, um, the Bhagavan's path is an inward path. No doubt we can get support from the physical presence of Bhagavan or the physical presence of Arunachala. But we can get still greater support by... No it is not necessary even to be in the physical presence of Arunachala. Why is it said, according to tradition, and Bhagavan has confirmed this, 
but mere thought of Arunachala would give liberation. Because the thought of Arunachala is more powerful than being in Arunachala's presence. We can be in Arunachala's presence. There are people who live in Turunam like their whole life, but their, their mind is fully engaged in worldly matters. Of course, it's a great blessing to be in the presence of Arunachala, but how much benefit are they gaining? They, relatively little. We can live thousands of miles away from Arunachala, never have the opportunity to go to Arunachala in our life. But if we think of Arunachala with love in our heart, that is far better than spending your whole life in the presence of Arunachala. Bhagavan said about people living in his presence, not all people, but some people, he said, there is just like the shadow that always remains at the foot of a lamp. The, um, that's in old days when the, the lamp post was a, a post and on top there would be a, a kerosene light or something. So always there'd be a shadow around the foot of the lamp post. Bhagavan said, just like that shadow at the foot of the lamppost always remains without ever going, there are those who live in the presence of Binyani, but their ignorance never goes because of their immaturity. So this is not to say that living in the presence of Bhagavan is not efficacious. Certainly even for the most immature, it will have its effect. But far greater than the efficacy of the mere physical presence of Bhagavan is the mental contact with Bhagavan. So when Bhagavan says cherish their association, he doesn't mean that, that we, obviously Bhagavan is not, in his human form, he's no longer available. He's still available in the form of Arunachala, but in the physical form, in the sense he's no longer available. But we can always think of him. We can always keep our mind dwelling on him. We can always be loving him in our heart. We can always be thinking of his teachings, trying to put his teachings into practice. So all of that is association with him. So when he says association, cherish their association, he's not just talking about being in their physical company. He means much more than that. He means we need to, our mind always needs to be associating with Bhagavan by constantly dwelling on his teachings, constantly trying to put his teachings into practice. That is true satsanga. Turning, as Bhagavan said, ultimately, what is sat? sat we are that. So the best satsanga is turning our attention within. Second best to that is dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings, which are constantly encouraging us to turn within. And to illustrate this, Bhagavan, um, there's an incident from Bhagavan's life that very nicely illustrates this. That is, there was a, a couple from North India. They were retired and their children had grown up and everything. So they wanted to spend the last years of their life in the company of Bhagavan. So they rented a house in Tiruvannamalai and they were living there. And every day they would go and uh, sit in Bhagavan's presence. One day, um, some relatives of theirs came from North India. So the wife had to stay at home and cook for the relatives and take care of all their needs. So the relatives stayed for a few days and maybe four or five days, let's say. And during those four or five days, the, the wife was too busy to go to, to Bhagavan. The husband took the relatives to meet Bhagavan, but the wife was at, busy at home preparing food and doing all the other things to take care of her guests. When the guests went, she came to Bhagavan. 
and she she lamented to Bhagavan, oh Bhagavan, for uh, for five days I've been I wasn't able to come to your presence. Bhagavan uh, replied, "It is better that you were there, thinking of here, than here thinking of there." What he meant by that is, if you have been here, you'll be thinking about your relatives. You have to cook food for them. You have to do everything for them. It's better, better than that, sitting here in Bhagavan's physical presence, but thinking about other things. It's better to be at home thinking of Bhagavan. So that the, from small little incidents like this, Bhagavan is giving us clues. But the more important member physical satsanga is the mental satsanga, associating with Bhagavan mentally. And Bhagavan is always available to us in the form of his teachings. And his teachings are what encourages us to turn within. So dwelling on his teachings, second only to Atmasanga, that is, as Bhagavan said, Atmasanga is the greatest of all, the, the most perfect satsanga. Atmasanga means having association with ourselves, turning our attention within. But second only to that is keeping our mind dwelling on Bhagavan's teachings, because Bhagavan's teachings are constantly encouraging us to turn our mind within. So when he said cherish their association, Yes, we should cherish by association, but what did, what is association with Bhagavan? More than merely sitting in his present physical presence and thinking about all our worries at home, it's better asso association to be at home and thinking about him, as Bhagavan said to that lady. I hope that adequately answers that question. The next question is a short one. Uh, why is this projection happening? <laughs> is this projection happening? The projection seems to be happening because you're looking at it. Turn your attention within, and you'll find you'll you'll see the non-existence of the one who is seeing this projection. As Bhagavan said, when people asked, "Why did ego come into existence?" Bhagavan said, ego seems to exist only because of avichara. Avichara means non-investigation. We can't say that avichara is the cause for ego to come into existence, because obviously avichara is only for ego. But why ego, why ego seems to exist now? Because we are not attending to ourselves. Avichara is another name for pramada. Pramada means negligence, self-negligence, not attending to ourselves. So why has all this appeared? Because you are not attending to yourself. Attending to, attend to yourself keenly enough, and the one who is seeing all this will cease to exist, will be, will be seen to be ever non-existent, and therefore no projection has ever taken place. Trying to explain how ego came into existence, why ego came into existence, why anything came into existence, is like asking, why was the son of a barren woman born? How was he born? Obviously, there's no such thing as a son of a barren woman, so all such questions are redundant. So this projection seems to exist simply because we do not see ourselves. See yourself, and you will no longer see the projection. 
as Bhagavan says in the, the fourth paragraph of Nana, um, second, he says, well, actually in the third and the fourth paragraph, he says, um, he says in the third paragraph, he says, if the mind which is the cause for all awareness and all activity ceases, Jagat Drishti will depart. Uh, when he said the cause for all awareness, he means all awareness of things other than ourselves. So the, the cause for all awareness and for all activity is mind, awareness of other things, that is. If that ceases, Jagat Drishti, the perception of the world, will depart. So we see the world only because we are not seeing ourselves. We, we, why, why mind seems to exist? Because we are looking outwards. And uh, because we are looking outwards, we seem to be the mind, and therefore the world seems to exist. And then he goes on to say, just as unless the imaginary snake goes, awareness of the rope, which is the foundation, the basis, the adhisthana, will not arise, unless perception of the world which is a mental creation, departs, uh, uh, darshana, or seeing, or seeing uh, oneself, uh, which is the adhisthana, right? that is, oneself is the adhisthana, swarupa, our real nature is the adhisthana, will not arise. Now, so long as we're seeing the world, we, we are not seeing ourselves. In order to see ourselves, we need to stop seeing the world. And he said the same in the, um, in the fourth paragraph. Um, excluding thoughts, there is not separately any such thing as world. That the world is just a series of mental impressions. Those mental impressions are all just thoughts. Uh, because Bhagavan uses the term thoughts in a very uh, broad sense. In sleep, there are no thoughts, and consequently, there is also no world. In waking and dream, there are thoughts, and consequently, there is also a world. Just as a spider spins out thread from within itself and again draws it back into itself, so the mind makes the world appear from within itself and again dissolves it back into itself. When the mind comes out from Atmasarupa, the world appears. Therefore, when the world appears, Swarupa does not appear. When Swarupa appears, the world does not appear. Swarupa means our real nature, what we actually are ourself as we actually are. So when we know ourself as we actually are, the world will not appear. Why does the world appear now? Because we are not knowing ourselves as we actually are, because we're looking outwards, so we see the world. Look within, and you will see that even the seer of the world, namely ego, doesn't exist. What actually exists is only Atmasarupa. And the next question is, uh, dear Michael, for many years I've done yogic practices, so forgive me for using this terminology. In yoga, to enter into samadhi is an important practice, and it means to purify the energy pathways or nadis, and then put the main energy channels, which are called ira and pingala, into equilibrium. These energy channels are the energies uh, of the mind and body. And this means uniting the right and left brain and thus entering into the middle channel, which is called Sushumna. And by this, the yogi achieves samadhi. Uh, 
Is it the case that Atma Vichara also needs the purification of the Naris and uniting them into the central channel, which is felt when the right and, and left not which is felt when the right and left nostrils have a similar or same flow of air? So the question is, um, um, is it necessary for Atma Vichara also to purify the Naris and unite them and enter the central channel to enter into Samadhi? Uh, P.S. Those yogic practices are not mental. We use them as concrete practices to achieve that, to achieve Samadhi. Um, let's go back to the basics. What is yoga about? The, the aim of yoga is chitta vritti nirodha, as that is in the right at the beginning of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali says, yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. So all the practices of yoga are, are aimed at chitta vritti nirodha. Chitta vritti means mental activity. Nirodha means the curbing mental activity. In other words, stopping mental activity, that is the aim of yoga. And the state in which the mental activities have ceased is what is called samadhi. All the practices of yoga and all the philosophy about this nada and pingala and uh, this uh, different nadis and all these things, these are all connected with this aim of trying to stop the mental activity in order to be in samadhi. But Bhagavan says merely stopping mental activity is not an adequate aim in itself. Every night when we fall asleep, we all mental activity ceases because we're too tired to continue attending to other things. We stop attending to other things, and so we subside in sleep. But sleep is just a state of manolaya. Manolaya means a temporary dissolution of mind. So as Bhagavan says in verse 13 of Upadeshundia, uh, but dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. What is subsided, what is dissolved in layer will rise again. If its form dies in nasa, it will not rise again. So our aim is mano nasa, not mano layer. Bhagavan said, mano, this the, uh, samadhi achieved by the yogis is mano layer. It is a temporary dissolution of mind. And that is not a useful aim in itself. To illustrate this, Bhagavan used to tell the story about a yogi on the banks of the Ganga. That yogi was extremely adept in, um, in his practices of yoga. He was so adept, he was often going into uh, Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi for prolonged periods of time. And he could remain in that state for sometimes for days on end. And because of that, he, he uh, because people saw him always sitting there in absorbed in samadhi, uh, the people, the local villagers worshipped him. And someone had come as his one other sadhu had come and was acting as his disciple. So once when that uh, yogi woke up from uh, his nivikalpa samadhi, he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to fetch water from a nearby Ganga. So the disciple went to the Ganga to fetch water, but by the time he had returned, the yogi had gone back into Samadhi. And this time he had gone into Samadhi so deeply that he didn't wake up for 300 years. 
when Bhagavan told this story, he um, he embellished it, uh, and he said, in those three hundred years, the Ganga had actually changed course. It was now the Ganga was several miles away, because when when going over the the, the floodplain, sometimes the rivers change course. So uh, during the course of that three hundred years, the Ganga had actually changed course. So it was now several miles away. Because the Ganga had moved, the village also moved. And um, so where the yogi was on the outskirts of a village uh, was by that time, after 300 years, it was in a dense jungle. But when the yogi woke up, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? What Bhagavan's, Bhagavan used to tell this story, his comment upon this story was, the most superficial, the, the last thought was in his, that was in his mind before he went into Nirvikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that popped up when he woke up. That means even the most superficial thought in the mind was not destroyed in spite of remaining for 300 years in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. When even the most superficial thought is not destroyed, <laughs> what about all the vasanas, the seeds that give rise to thoughts? So, remaining in, in Nirvikalpa Samadhi is not useful. It is just the, it, it is, it's just like um, if you're traveling on a train somewhere, if you get off at a station because you think it's a nice scenery and you stay at that place for some time, it's fine, but you're not making any progress. You're not going to reach your destination until you get back in the train and continue your journey. So, according to Bhagavan, going into Nirvikalpa Samadhi is of no spiritual benefit at all, because in Nirvikalpa Samadhi is just a state of Manolaya. It does not bring about Manonasa. That is why Bhagavan, uh, in, in Nana, in the eighth paragraph, when he talks about mano, uh, uh, pranayama, he says, so long as the prana remains subsided, the mind will remain subsided. And when the prana comes out, the mind will also come out and wander under the sway of its vasanas. Therefore, pranayama is not, he concludes that paragraph by saying, therefore, pranayama is an aid to uh, restrain the mind, but it is not, will not bring about manonasa. So, our aim is Manonasa. Manonasa can be brought about only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. So in, in, um, in Upadesha Undiya, Bhagavan deals with the path of yoga in five verses, verses 11 to 15. 15 is about the conclusion, so that's not directly uh, connected with the path, that is the final result. What Bhagavan says there is, in the first two of those uh, uh, four verses, verses 11 and 12, he says that, um, that uh, uh, restraining the breath is a means to restrain the mind, like a bird caught in a net. And why? Because the, the prana and the mind, have a, they are like two branches of a single tree. They, have, they share a common root. So the mula shakti that appears as this the, the mind is a knowing power, jnana shakti, the breath is kriya shakti, a, a doing power, but the root power is one. So when you control one, you control the other. Um, it's like having a, a, a light switch, 
if you've got a if you nowadays we have these dimmer switches uh supposing you've got one switch to control both a light and a fan if you want to dim the light you also dim the we also slow down the fan if you want to uh, slow down the fan you also dim the light they, they're both connected by so likewise if you if you control the mind if you subdue the mind the breath will be, will be subdued if you subdue the breath the, the mind will also be subdued but by subduing the breath all you bring about is layer so bhagavan says in the first 13 dissolution of mind is of two kinds layer and nasa what is in layer will rise again what is in nas if, if its form dies in nasa it will not rise again then in the next verse verse 14 he says if the mind which subs which will uh subside by restraint of the breath if that only if that mind is sent on the ovary will its form die what's he mean by ovary <clears throat> ovary superficially it seems to mean one part Vari means path, or means one. But or has another meaning. Or is a verb that means to investigate and to know. So or vari can also mean orum vari. Orum vari means the path of investigation. So that is what Bhagavan actually means there. Only simply controlling the breath will bring about manalaya. Once we're in Manolaya, we obviously can't do anything because it's a, it's a state like sleep. It's a state of complete dissolution of mind. So we can't make any effort in Manolaya. So before we go into Manolaya, if the, if the yogi, before the yogi go, uh, goes into Manolaya, if he sends his mind on the investigating path, in other words, if he turns his mind back within to investigate who am I, then only will the mind die. So this this yoga is not a is not a complete path in itself but, but merely by yoga we cannot annihilate the mind we cannot bring about manonasa by yoga so yoga can enable us to calm down the mind to keep the mind in a, a calm and clear state then before we subside in manolaya we need to turn the attention back within to attend to ourselves so regarding this nada and pingala and all these nadis and chakras and everything i can tell a story which uh, suri nagama uh, wrote and it was uh, i think she wrote it in telugu it's not in any of her books as far as i'm aware but it was uh, it must have been in something she wrote to her brother and it was translated into english and it appeared as a filler in the mountain path about 40 45 years ago I, I remember reading it that is what Surinagama wrote is once some learned pundits came and for, uh, they, they were very learned in yoga sastras so for several days they were talking with Bhagavan all about this Nada this um, um, Nada Pingala these Nadis the Shushumna all these things Suri Nagama was listening to all this, but she couldn't make head or tail because she didn't know about all these yoga things. So she was feeling a bit dejected, but she couldn't understand all these things. After these um, these learned people had left, 
and she asked Bhagavan, Bhagavan, you were talking with these people all about these things that I couldn't understand. Can you explain all this to me? Bhagavan said, why should you want to know about all these things? No, but Bhagavan, you were talking about these things with them, so it must be something important. Bhagavan said, because they were asking me, I was answering, but that is what they came to me to know, so I talked to them about this. But this is not necessary. Then she said, well, isn't it, surely it's good. Yoga is a great thing. Surely I shouldn't I know all this. So you were talking about nadis and... Uh, Shushumna uh, and all these different things. So, wouldn't it be good if I know all these things? Bhagavan said, Why should you know about all these things? This is all manokarpana. It's all a, a mental fabrication. All a, it's all an imagination. And she said, What? All these things that the yogis talk about, it's all an imagination. Bhagavan said, Yes, when even the body itself is an imagination, money, body itself is a manokarpana, what will all these things be? So that shows what is Bhagavan's real attitude towards these things. All these things are okay for people who are attracted to these things. But if we want to go deeper, we must leave behind all these yoga practices and come to this path of this Orvari, the, the investigating path. Because it's only by investigating ourselves that we can know ourselves as we actually are. And since ego is a wrong awareness of ourself, awareness of ourself is something other than what we actually are, ego can be destroyed only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. This is what is meant in the Advaita Sastras when they say uh, the problem is avidya, and avidya can be removed only by vidya. The avidya they're talking about is the is ego that ego itself as bhagavan said is mula vidya ego is because ego is the false awareness i am this body so that is the ignorance that is to be removed that ignorance can be removed only by vidya what vidya will remove that avidya since the avidya is awareness of ourselves as something other than what we actually are being aware of ourselves as we actually are alone is the vidya but will remove it so the, uh, the aim of um, Bhagavan's path is to know ourselves as we actually are. To know ourselves as we actually are, we don't need any yoga practices. All we need is to turn our mind within to see who am I. So Bhagavan's path is a much simpler and a more direct path. As Bhagavan said about this Chittavriti Nirodaha, he said that is not a that is not practical because merely bringing about Chittavriti Nirodaha will result in layer. It's only a temporary state. It, what we want is we want to be permanently free of the problem. The root of the problem is our rising as ego. So we need to put an end to this ego. We can put an end to this ego only by knowing ourselves as we actually are. So with all due respect to all yogis, Bhagavan, was, when any yogis came to Bhagavan, if they were open to it, he would turn them towards his path. Some of them were not open to it. They only wanted to know about their own path. So like those learned people um, uh, uh, Suri Nagama was talking about, they were only interested in yoga. So Bhagavan talked to him only about yoga. Just like if a child comes to Bhagavan with a toy, Bhagavan isn't going to say, investigate yourself. Bhagavan will play with the toy with the child. Because that is what the child has come to Bhagavan for. In, when Bhagavan was living on the hill, 
the, the children from the town used to, at, at the time of Deepawali, when they got their fireworks, their patas, as it's called in Tamil, they would bring to Bhagavan and they would want to play fireworks with Bhagavan. So what did he do? He played fireworks with them. So Bhagavan treats everyone at their own level. When people were much interested in Sri Chakra Puja, Bhagavan said, yes, if you do your Sri Chakra Puja. Because Bhagavan, that is, Bhagavan didn't come to teach how to play fireworks or how to do Sri Chakra Puja or how to, um, to, to do move uh, the, the, the prana from this nadi to that nadi or up the shushumna, all that. That is all. But Bhagavan did say, incidentally, about this everything that is achieved by yoga is also achieved by this atma vichara. That is, yoga is trying to withdraw the, the prana along the shushumna nadi up to the sahasrara. But Bhagavan said that is not the end. It has to come down and merge in the heart. All this is achieved by Atma Vichara without knowing anything about this yoga. So yo Atma Vichara fulfills the purpose of yoga, but goes beyond. Because yoga talks only about the Sahasrara and breaking out of the Sahasrara, Kapala Veda. But that is not the aim in Atma Vichara. In Atma Vichara, our aim is to merge back in the heart. And of course, Though, in a certain sense, we can say the heart has a location in the body, truly speaking, the heart is beyond all, beyond time and space, as Bhagavan made clear in so many places. So, this yoga is, we need to go beyond yoga if we want to go deeper. Some people are satisfied with yoga. If people were satisfied with yoga, if they didn't want to go any deeper, then Bhagavan would talk to them even for four or five days on, on end. Bhagavan could talk about all these things because Bhagavan understood the truth underlying all these things. But that is not the aim. The aim is to know and to be what we actually are. To know and to be what we actually are. We don't need any of these yoga practices. All we need is to turn the mind within and to merge back into the source. Oh, Michael, there's just one practical question before the others. Um, mm. uh, um, somebody's asked the name of the books that you mentioned for love, um, what the names were of the books and where they can be found. That is Arunachala Stuti Panchakam. That is the five hymns to Arunachala composed by Bhagavan in Tamil. The first of them is Arunachala Akshamalai, which is 108 verses, uh, short, short, short verses. Um, the next one is Arunachala Navamanimalai, which is a collection of nine different verses that Bhagavan wrote on different occasions. Then the next two are uh, Patikam and Ashtakam. Those Bhagavan wrote, that is, uh, the verse, the first verse of Arunachya Patikam started coming to Bhagavan. And for several days, the, that line kept on coming to him until finally he wrote the verse. And then the next day, another verse started with the, with the last word of the previous verse. The, uh, that is, the, the first verse ended with Ambe, O love. And then the next verse begins, Amburu Varanacha, Aranacha, the form of love. So, like this, on a series of, um, uh, I think it was a total of um, 17 days, 
verses were coming to Bhagavan, one verse a day. Um, the first 11 of those 17 verses were in one meter. They were seven seer viritum. And the next six were a six seer viritum. So when a devotee came to know about these, he wanted to print them. Uh, so Bhagavan said, okay, you can print the first 11 as Aranachapatikam, and the last six, Bhagavan said, okay, I'll compose two more verses to make it up to eight, so that can be Ashtakam. So he composed the last two verses. Um, and then the final one of the five hymns is Aranachapancharatnam. That Bhagavan had composed the first verse spontaneously in Sanskrit. Though Bhagavan didn't know much Sanskrit, he knew enough to compose a verse. So he composed the first verse in Sanskrit. When Kaviyaganta came to know about this verse, he asked him, he said, okay, this verse is on, um, is on, uh, what did he take it? Oh, okay, he said, please compose a verse like this on each of the four yogas. One on yoga, one on um, uh, one on uh, jnana, one on bhakti, and one on karma. Um, Bhagavan didn't, um, what Bhagavan, so Bhagavan then composed the other four verses. Um, but even when he composed the verse on, on yoga, he said, the yogi meditates on you, the light within, and thereby merges in you. So even yoga, he turns it back to turning within. Um, so uh, that's how those five verses came into existence. So these together, these five hymns are called Aranatya Stuti Panchakam. Um, they're available, various translations are available of them if you don't know Tamil. Um, I'm hoping to bring out my own translations of them. I've translated, that is, there are, if you go to my YouTube channel, doesn't see the playlist, there are playlists on each one of these. I haven't finished talking about the verses of Aksharamalai. I've done about 21 verses or so. I plan to take that up again later once I have uh, finished translating all of Bhagavan's works because so many people keep on asking me for translations. So when I complete translating them, they will all be available on my blog or website and later will be made available in books. But until then, there are other translations are also available. Um, translations vary in quality. Some are better, some are not so good. But anyway, there are a number of translations available. Is there one you recommend, Michael? Um, there is on my... Well, if you go to my blog, you can see the... I've translated the first... There are 21 articles there, one on each of the first 21 verses of Akram. Right? Um, there's also on my website, there's a, a, an old translation by Sadhu Omanai, which was published as a book. I don't think the book is now available. It may be, I'm not sure. But anyway, a PDF of it is available on my uh, website. If you, go to, um, if you go to my website, happinessofbeing.com, in the side margin, you'll see there are various links. If you see under books, one of the, I think the first one is uh, Aranatus Tutipanchikam. If you click on that, there's a page about it and a link to the PDF. Um, so that's, that's probably the best available translation. Unfortunately, that book wasn't printed, was printed rather carelessly, so there are many mistakes in it, but it gives the general meaning of the verses.
and also as I say, the the um the other four hymns beside Akshamlai, which I haven't yet completed, there's a playlist for each one of them on my YouTube channel. And if you go to each video, there's one video on each verse. In the description of the video, there's a translation of the verse. Thank you. Right. Yeah, the next question is, uh, could you explain what is meant by non-doership? And is the effort to turn within a form of doership? Doership is the nature of ego, because as ego, we identify ourselves with the bundle of five sheaves. So we, the, the instruments of action are mind, speech, and body. Because we experience this mind, speech, and body as ourself, we, whatever actions are done by mind, speech, or body, we experience as I am, I am doing this. I am thinking, I am speaking, I am sitting. These all, I'm thinking that's an activity of the mind. But I think my experience is it. I am thinking. Speech is an activity of the speech, but my experience is I am speaking. Sitting is the body is sitting, but because I take this body to me myself, I am sitting. So doership is the very nature of ego. We cannot get rid of doership without getting rid of do ego. So non-doership is the non-rising of ego. There's no doership in sleep because ego is absent. So there's neither doership nor experiencership, because doership and experiencership go hand in hand. As Bhagavan says in verse 38 of Uludunapadu, if we are the doer of actions, we will have to experience the resulting fruit. When one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action, doership will depart and all the three karmas will come to an end, will slip off. This is liberation, which is eternal. Why? What does he mean by if one knows oneself by investigating who is the doer of action? The doer of action is obviously ego, the one who is aware, I am, do, I, I am thinking, I am speaking, I am sitting, or whatever. So do, doership is, even if we're doing nothing, I am sitting here doing nothing is again a doership. We, we are identifying ourselves with the non-doing. So doership is the very nature of ego. So the doer is ego. If we investigate this ego to see what we actually are, when we thereby know ourselves as we actually are, ego will cease to exist. When ego ceases to exist, doership and experiencership will cease to exist. The, the three karmas that Bhagavan refers to are agamya, sanchitta, and prarabdha. Agamya are the actions we do under the sway of our vasanas. So we need doership to do agamya. So when doership goes, agamya, obviously, there's no more agamya. No more possibility of doing agamya because there's no doership. And the sanchitta and prarabdha, they are the fruits of those actions that we have done uh, past agamya. So being the fruit, they are what is to be experienced. So the, the doer and the experiencer are one and the same. That is, ego is both the doer of the action and the experiencer of the fruit. So when ego goes, not only does doership depart, experiencership departs. So without ego, there cannot be any of the three karmas. As Bhagavan says in Uludunapdu Anubandham, if the wife, if, if, if a husband has three wives and if a husband dies, 
all the three wives will become widows. So this, these uh, three karmas are widowed when ego dies. There's no one left to do them or to experience them. So they cease to exist. And what remains is, is, is nittamam mukti nilay, the state of liberation which is eternal. When he says it's eternal, what does he mean? Does he mean this liberation will start only from the moment that um, the doership goes? No, it is eternal. That means that even now we are in the state of liberation. We seem to be in bondage because we have risen as ego. So long as we rise as ego, we seem to be in bondage. When, when we investigate ourselves, we will see there's no such thing as ego. Then we will see that we are eternally liberated. So the state of non-doership is the state of not rising as ego. In other words, being as we actually are alone is non-doership. Because our real nature is not doing, but being. But so long as we rise as ego, we seem to be a doer because we identify ourselves with these instruments of action, mind, speech, and body. Some people say, oh, you had to do action without doership. That is absurd. <laughs> if you're doing action, that implies you're, uh, I am doing action without doership. What does that mean? That's, that's a, an obvious contradiction. The very fact that we feel I am doing action, that itself is the doership. So we can't be free of doership so long as we continue to rise as ego. To put an end to doership, we need to put an end to our rising as ego. We need to be as we actually are. Can prayer from the heart's yearning be the manifestation of one's destiny? No, it is grace, grace only. That is, prayer is, is the yearning of our heart. Destiny is what we, destiny is the fruit of actions. So destiny is what is to be experienced. The yearning of our heart, in our heart. So prayer is, is not, is not, uh, we can't say the true prayer. That that is maybe the outward, the outward actions of prayer may be in accordance with destiny. For example, supposing we are we are praying to God for the removal of difficulties and so on. Sometimes He may design our prayer in such a way that we'll be made to pray at a certain stage in our life when we face difficulty. And it's already predetermined that that difficulty should be removed. So in that sense, yes, the, the more superficial prayer may sometimes be actions we are made to do in accordance with our destiny. As Bhagavan said in, in the note he wrote for his mother, in accordance with the destiny of each one, he who is for that, meaning God or Guru, being there, there will cause to act. So it is possible we could be made to pray in accordance with our destiny. If God wants to, wants to us to, um, because the, the destiny is ordained in such a way to, for our spiritual benefit. So sometimes God may have ordained the destiny in such a way, but we should face a difficulty. We should therefore uh, feel driven to pray to re for removal of that difficulty, and then the difficulty is removed. What is the result of that? 
we then have more faith in God, more faith in prayer and so on. So at that level, yes, perhaps. But the true prayer, the prayer for the yearning in our heart for the, to surrender ourselves to him, such prayer is not destiny. Such prayer is grace working through us, gives us that love to pray for that. Um, I'm just going to put one more question because I think it's already been answered, so it could be fairly quick. Uh, the question is, I'm getting contradictory views on the purpose of other spiritual practices like meditation, bhakti, and yoga. While it's clear that they can't lead to liberation, some interpretations suggest that they are prerequisites before embarking on self-inquiry, while other interpretations suggest they are not much needed. Is there a clear view Bhagwan has given? Both those views are correct. That is, other paths, they will lead to purification of mind. When the mind is purified, we will then be drawn to this path. So other paths are a means to come to this path. But the fact we've come to this path means we don't need both paths anymore. Once we come to Bhagavan, it's, we've already gone through, we must already have gone through some other practices before because it brought us to this stage. So, in a sense, both those statements are true. Yes, other if, if, for, for those who, who have not yet come to this path, who are not yet drawn to this path, then other paths are necessary. Once we are drawn to this path, once we're attracted to this path, then other paths become unnecessary. But we are attracted to this path because our mind has been sufficiently purified by following the other paths. So the other paths, we shouldn't, we should never look down on or criticize other paths because it, they may not be for us. Like, like I was saying earlier about the, um, if, if you're studying PhD, you don't need to be learning, you don't need to be repeating your times table and your ABC every day, because you went through all that, that's all past. You, the, the, the benefit of doing that, you've already achieved. So different types of practices are appropriate for people at different levels of spiritual development. That's why there are different paths, to suit people of different temperament. Yoga is for people who want to do something. Uh, uh, bhakti is more for those who 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 feel drawn to love, who, who uh, want to depend on God and everything. So diff different types of mentality. Those who are drawn to bhakti, uh, it, it, it's a different type of mentality to those who are drawn to yoga. Some people are maybe drawn to both, it's true, because some people may have a bit of both. But all these different parts are designed to suit people of different temperaments. But once we have been drawn to this path, um, it's no longer, we no longer need any of these other paths. So these other paths have become redundant. But just because we don't need those other paths doesn't mean that others don't need it. Because most people are not attracted to this path of self-investigation and self-surrender. This, is, this, this won't appeal to the majority of people, which is why there are so many other paths suited to their needs. <laughs>